Our passage this Lord's Day comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 37. And I believe it's to be found on page 1075 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before the throne of heaven, we hear the voice of our Lord and Savior. And so I pray, Lord, that you allow your spirit to abide in us so that we more richly appreciate what your son was declaring here before Pilate, before he went into death, that he went to the cross. Let us have ears that hear. Let us have hearts where you further break away the, the hard places, the stony places of our hearts and make them more tender and loving towards you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to the Gospels, it's well known that if you want the traditional Christmas story, the kind of Christmas story that components of the nativity, um, uh, for the components of the nativity scene, that you don't go to the Gospel of Mark. You don't go to the Gospel of John. You really stick to the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. That in those two accounts, that there is a description of the birth narrative of Jesus that you just don't find in the other two Gospels. And yet, it's a misunderstanding to say that uh, there is no place in the uh, other two Gospels where Jesus' birth is not talked about. This is actually a unique Versed in all of Scripture, in that Jesus, mere hours before his death, is actually speaking to the purpose of his birth. And that's a really it's a really interesting verse in the fact that often we'll we'll find movies or books or, or songs and hymns at this time of year that speaks to the deepest meaning of Christmas. And, and the reality is it's not just a one-size-fits-all kind of comment, but, but you often hear things like Christmas is all about Emmanuel, God with us. That's biblically true. And, 
or we'll hear that Jesus' birth shows us the light that's shining in the darkness, or Jesus' birth shows the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants. And there's all of these perfectly valid ways in which we describe the birth of Jesus, and yet from the lips of Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 37, is said something about his birth we don't often sing in the Christmas hymns. And we don't often uh, focus upon, or sometimes we even kind of miss in this time of year. And it's really the word truth. That the birth of Christ, that the leading, that Jesus being born into the world is a matter of truth. And again, I'm, to be clear from the start, it's not that we only have truth as a part of this Christmas story. But yet, here is Jesus about to die. These are some of the last words we have from Jesus in the entire gospel narrative, and they're describing his birth. And at central, central to his point is the importance of truth. When we consider Christmas, when we consider the manger, and especially in a world where the very idea of truth itself has fallen on hard times, we want to hold on to this portion of the Christmas story. We live in a world where if truth challenges the established cultural feelings and opinions that, of the day, well then that's a serious problem. That's a threat to society. And that truth must be cast aside for the betterment of someone's feelings. And yet that desire to cancel truth, to ignore truth, as the setting of this passage is making clear, is actually a battle against God Himself. Because God's actual enter in, entrance into the world is a battle for truth and a, against a culture that hates truth. It's not just some postmodern problem. It's not just some problem since the, you know, of the last decade or what have you, or since uh, Bruce Jenner was on the cover of Time Magazine 10 years ago. That's, that's not when the problem for truth started. The problem of truth started in all of human history, uh, a fallen human history, when we as uh, fallen individuals have all gone astray, and Christmas is the embodied entrance of pure truth through the incarnate Son, the Word of God made flesh. And so that's why truth is at the very fabric of the Christmas message itself. And that's why the truth of Jesus Christ is such a, a powerful thing, though, that even if we took a moment and we looked at the setting of this passage... Here is Jesus bound in chains. He has already received some of the beatings that he would receive before going to the cross. Everything in the world at this moment looks as if Jesus has no power. Jesus has no authority here. 
Pilate is in control. Pilate's power is established by Tiberius Caesar. He's a, he's a servant of the most empi- powerful empire the world has uniquely seen up until this point and, and debatably ever would see up until this point of human, uh, in human history. Everything of power seems to be in Pilate's hands. And yet, it is the bound one, it is the bruised one, it is the battered one who clings to truth, who is truth, who who actually holds all the power. And that is a part of the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a declaration that truth is more powerful than swords. Truth is more powerful than worldly governments because truth is something found at the very core of our faith. But more than that, truth is a capital T. Truth is a person. True Christianity refuses to allow itself to be shared with other philosophies or religions of its day because it's a faith that says once you do that, you have so distorted the person who is truth very God of very God, that you make God false. This is the God who declared of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so again, even in this moment, while we see Jesus bound in chains, And he appears at first glance powerless. He's the one with full authority because he's the one standing in truth. And that is a most important acknowledgement indeed when it comes to Christmas. It's that acknowledgement of the shift of power bases in our world. And if you grab a hold of what Jesus is saying here in this passage, it really can change our feelings of powerlessness. Let me illustrate what I'm getting at this way. If I was to ask you, who is Kim Jong-un? Who is Kim Jong-un? Bruce, you're always the one who answers, so be louder. Korea. Korea. What what is he in North Korea? The biggest jerk you're ever going to be. Biggest jerk, biggest tyrant. Biggest, you know, this despot of North Korea. And what we're kind of saying when we say that is, he's the one who holds all the keys of power in North Korea. But yet, if you understand what's being said here in this passage, you know who really holds power in North Korea? It's the people who gathered today, the Lord's Day with maybe a smuggled Bible in the rural countryside with starving uh, rations of food, you know, essentially on the brink of starvation, who gathered around this smuggled Bible in order to celebrate, in order to worship the God they knew who came into the world in order to establish truth and, and all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto him, They are so much more powerful this morning. Well, for them, it's a little later. I think they're in the next day because it's Dateline. But they are so much more powerful than Kim Jong-un. 
King Jong-un's power is temporary. It's finite. It has no cosmic power beyond the fact that if he does not repent, he does not relent, he does not uh, come to know the living God, all he will be do- have done to him is to be judged. It's probably too much. I, I knew an individual who's a part of the apparatus who spied on Kim Jong-un. He said the things that he knew that that man did haunted him. Haunted him. And yet, the reality is, the Christian experience doesn't mean that we're some sort of cultural elite. We don't have our flaws. We don't have our sins. We don't have that, that little dictator in our own heart that says, I want my truth up against uh, God's truth. I want to be my own God, not a follower of the true God. It's not that we don't have that inner struggle, that inner turmoil at times. Absent the grace of God, I, I could so go the way of the despots, of the tyrants, of world history. But what is at the core of Christian hope is the good news that no longer do we need to look to us and ourselves and exhaust ourselves in the matters that we declare to be true and trying to be our own gods, but rather we can look to the God who has power and authority over everything and say, I love him, I adore him, I desire to follow him in because he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And it's the person who has submitted to the authority of Christ who has far more power, whether we're talking about North Korea or we're talking about the United States of America or we're talking about ancient Rome that holds all the power even in and against those who would seek to undo it. So while King Jong-un might wield all the petals of propaganda from the internet to TV stations to newspapers to billboards, And that individual in the countryside has none of that, but they have that truer word from Christ. It's the believer in the fields who is truly free indeed. Because if you have the truth of Christ, if you understand the fullness of the Christmas message, we have everything at that point. And we need not anything else. Another thing for us to consider is how this passage tells us what Jesus came to be. Now, this passage suffers from a little bit of a blind spot in that we don't know how these words were said in the Greek, but this is actually the second time Pilate has asked Jesus if he is a king. And he said, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. It it could mean, it can seem to people that maybe Jesus is trying to tell Pilate, maybe he's not a king. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually telling Pilate, basically, your definition of kingship isn't enough, Pilate. Because Pilate is looking in the temporal reality. He's looking in the finite reality. And he's, he's assessing whether or not Jesus is a threat to Tiberius Caesar. That's his only question, really. That's his only job as a governor. Actually, we know from the historical record that um, 
that final period of 40 years before the temple that there is a reality where the Roman citizen, the Roman century was the one that decided left life or death matters. It was taken away from the Jews. And that's all that really concerns him. But again, uh, Jesus isn't willing to enter into that conversation because it's not about Jesus as establishing himself through his earthly life as a king, but rather as we can find a chapter earlier in John 17, Jesus always had that divine authority. We read, for instance, in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And Jesus, 19 verses later, in John 17, 24, Father, I want those you have given me to, to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so while Pilate's trying to figure out this kind of small minor, minor temporal question, little does Pilate know when he comes to the conclusion that this Jesus isn't a threat, isn't someone who really deserves this, but he will eventually succumb to the mob, that actually the power of truth would be a power that would help undo the very heart of the Roman Empire. That the power of Christianity, and, and especially Christianity and when it's most persecuted in the Roman story, actually some of the worst persecution you get in the history of Christendom is right before Constantine makes it legal, especially in the eastern half of the empire under Domitian. Where when we read that Nicene Creed, those, that was written by people who had scars of torture and, and would not relent on the truth of the matter of who Jesus was. But Pilate doesn't think it's a threat, but threat, but truth is always a threat because truth is a person. And in that person of Christ, he has all power and authority and dominion. And while Pilate was blind to see it, Christmas is part of that time where we take a moment and we consider for ourselves, do we have that in mind when we go about our lives? Do we understand the power that we have when we share the good news of Christ with others? The goal of our life is not just to, to be on some naughty or, I mean, be on the nice list as opposed to... Uh, the naughty list, but actually, and it's not that it's it's bad to be nice. We want we want charity. I, I we we are a community striving to be charitable, but at our core, at our root, what defines us as a community is should be a community that is unashamed of the truth of Christ and His Word and what He declares. Because it is a kingdom of truth, as he's making clear in this passage. And every area of our life where we are out of line or out of accord with God's word, we need to fight against it. As the Apostle Paul would later put it in chapter 3 of Romans, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul includes himself 
in the greater community of all Christianity in that we all need to be a community striving to be found in the truth of Christ. So, application. You want to prevail in truth this Christmas? How do you define life? Do you define life as God's word declares life to be? As God's word defines life? You want to prevail in truth this Christmas? How do you define grace? How do you define mercy? How do you define love? Are you defining it the way God's word describes grace? God's word describes mercy? God's word describes love? It's going to be difficult if you do. Because in, for instance, the next one I'll bring up. How do you define marriage? You define marriage how God's word defines marriage and what that covenant bond is to look like? Because if you don't, people are going to say, you don't know grace. You don't know mercy. You don't know love. And yet, God is a God of truth. God is not a God of contradiction. God is not a God of darkness. And do we have the courage this Christmas to be a light of truth in the midst of those we love? Even those we love who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and declared him as their Lord and Savior. Our Savior had the courage to enter into this world, a world filled with lies and devils untold. And he had a courage to be light in the darkness. He had courage to look up and to stand up to Pilate. And even though it all appeared that Jesus was, was finished and all was lost, he knew he had truth. And that truth gave him a freedom, but he knew also he was truth. And so that gives him power over all. It's not enough to say you want to keep Christ in Christmas and, and say Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays. But do you want to uphold His truth as the only truth by which we can receive light from what God wants? You look around in your neighborhoods and you drive around them. I was just driving... In Percocy a couple of days ago, I was going to stop by and deliver a tomato and an onion to your mailbox, but the giant was closed, Rob. Um, Caitlin was so disappointed. Um, and here, Caitlin and I stumbled on this community, and it was like one of those communities where everybody decides to do Christmas decorations. And there's snowmen. And there's reindeer, and there's Santa Clauses, and there's, you know, big inflatable gifts. I didn't see much truth there, though. 
Because there's a, there's a very comfortable ease with Christians to just forget that Christmas is a declaration of truth. And just sweep that aside. Just, just, just that's inconvenient. We don't, we don't want to deal with that. Rather than to having a courage that is more reflective of our Lord's courage. Here's the irony of this scene. Here we have in the Passion account as Jesus stands there in confidence declaring that his very birth was a matter over the truth. And he has already first been rejected by the Jews and he's been rejected because Jesus pushed against their traditions. Jesus pushed against the things they very things they wanted to be true at their synagogues and, and in the course of their life. Uh, while we might not be uh, Jews clamoring for synagogues, we have things in our lives where we decide to hold on to things that are not good for us, that are poisons for our soul to hold on to. And we decide to do that because we will not relent to the truth of God's saving mercy. We will not uh, relent to the fact that there is a better way and of living and having freedom in Christ. And so when we do that, when we stubbornly will not bend the knee to the Word of God and what the Word of God declares for our actions and how we're to live and to move and have our being, in one sense we fall into the trap of the Jewish individual at this time of the Passion when they are encountered with truth incarnate. But there is another side of the coin and it's represented by Pilate. And this is a very popular truth today. And this is a truth that, that ultimately is probably seen in the, in the lights of Percocy and all around the area. Is that we have fallen in love with a relative world. We have fallen in love with an, a world where we say relativism is the nicest of all isms. It's, it's the most peaceable. It's the most uh, polite. And so when Jesus declares to Pilate, that he is truth, the embodiment of truth. What does he say in the very next verse? What is truth? Everything's relative. You, you've got some interesting philosophies, Jesus, but I already have other things that are philosophies. You know, I, there's interesting philosophies from this individual and, and that philosopher and, and this politician and, and these sorts of things. We become relativistic, and, and that's not the Christmas call. The Christmas call is that actually we have a very specific individual we believe in. We trust his words more than we trust ourselves. We trust his blueprint more than we trust our own designs on what this world should look like because he is the God who created the world and entered the world, and we will not have peace until we bow the knee to him. That's the Christmas story. Here we have three wise men, three kings. They would have been paganistic probably. Maybe Zoroastrian, but they, they're not of the Jewish fold. And they came to Jesus and they were bowed the knee because he was the embodiment of truth. We have Jewish individuals depicted in the nativity scene who shepherds, lowly shepherds, who came to Christ and bowed the knee. And they embraced the truth of who he was. 
And you will not have Christmas. You will not have the Christ of Christmas. You will just have the superstitions of religious superficialism until you say to yourself, let God's word be true and every man a liar. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we all have places in our own hearts where we refuse to believe upon you and you alone as the word of truth, as the one who entered into the world in order to give us a way to live, a moral law even to stand in with confidence because that moral law is perfectly depicted in who you were before us. And so we thank you, God, that in your economy of grace, the world is upside down from what it believes it is. That those in power over governments throughout the world who do not believe in you, they have no power at all. Because there is a greater king over heaven and earth who holds truth in his hand. And truth sets us free. It is the truth that died for us. It is truth that rose again from the grave. It's a truth that pursued us even though we did not pursue truth. And so help us, Lord. Help us to, to leave this place and to be people who pursue truth for neighbor, pursue <coughs> truth for uh, those we love, to not forsake truth, but to lovingly, with gentleness and respect, share truth with others. Let us do this so that we have a more full appreciation of what Christmas is about. That even let us forsake the world's calls to act as if truth is a bad thing, that truth divides, and rather let your word cut deeply into our hearts, and hopefully, Lord, if you so desire, uh, those in whom we have the opportunity to share the good news of Christmas with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.